everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We have a very, very special edition of the Strong Towns Podcast. We're in a real studio, not my hack studio in uh, my office, but we're in like a real professional place here. We have an audience. Audience, can you give us some applause or cheering? So we actually have people here uh, listening to us. Um, sitting around the table here to my very left is a good friend of mine, Kevin Klinkenberg. He's now with K2 Urban Design, which is not to be confused with Mount Everest Urban Design, although he'll get you to the top of the mountain and back. Um, we're in Kevin's uh, town of Kansas City, and uh, I'm very proud to be here with you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chuck. Glad you could be here. Um, you've been on the podcast before, right? I have. Yeah, so so old time, old timer. Someone else you've heard on the podcast before as well. Uh, you might have heard me talk about him one or two or 10,000 times is uh, one of my best friends in the world from Urban 3 uh, here in Kansas City to give a little update on some work that they've been doing. Joe Minicosi. Joe, welcome back to the, the podcast. Thanks for having me. We brought some math. Yeah, we did. I, I don't think we've had uh, a, a setup quite this nice, though, have we? I feel this like fancy. I feel like we have to rise to the occasion. Um, and directly across the table from me, uh, from Gould Evans, uh, 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 Dennis Strait. Dennis, welcome, first of all, to the podcast. I know you've not been on before. Thanks for hosting us. I'm thrilled to be here, Chuck, and really thrilled to have both you guys back in town. Tell us, just before we get started a little bit, about Gould Evans. Uh, Gould Evans is a national planning and design firm. We've been around for 45 years, and uh, we have a planning studio in the Kansas City office who uh, has been following your lead in a lot of ways and trying to bring a new way of thinking to cities that we work with. Well, this is the third time I think you and I have sat down and chatted uh, second time we've really done an intensive thing here in Kansas City. Uh, you guys do some amazing work and uh, just very thankful that we can set this up again. Um, I, I want to focus this conversation on Kansas City and the Kansas City area. I know we've got two Kansas cities here. Um, let's start with the uh, let's start with just the idea of a Midwestern city. Um, as I travel around the country, obviously, when we go from east to west, the landscape changes. When we go from north to south, uh, the, there's less dramatic change than that east to west change. Kansas City is one of these cities that kind of sits within this framework of there was enough there at the, at the end of the Great Depression and World War II to not completely tear it down and start over. Uh, there was enough there uh, to, you know, not, like we see in California, reinvent these cities from scratch. Yet, we've seen post-World War II utter transformation of this place. Talk a little bit about Kansas City as a representative of the Midwest. Is this a city that is kind of like a prototype, or is this a city that is an anomaly? Well, I'll, I'll start on that. Yeah, Chuck. Kevin. Uh, and then Dennis, just jump in and, and correct me as well. But, you know, Kansas City is interesting, I think, for people who aren't as familiar with the middle of the country, um, there's obviously a, a lot of lack of knowledge about what it's what it's like here and what the different cities are like. I think for if you step back in, in history a little bit, you have to consider that for a period of about 50 years, Kansas City was the boom city of the Western United States from probably 1880 to 1930. And so as a result, in that era, in that sort of city building era, we have this remarkable collection of urban neighborhoods that were that were built. Uh, and, and a legacy of great uh, architecture and planning from, from that period in time when tremendous growth happened. Basically, anybody who was everybody came through Kansas City. It was a much more important city than any place west or south of here in that era. And then, obviously, you know, we entered the, the Depression and then the era of sort of the new modern city, and which you write so well about in your book. And Kansas City probably embraced the new thinking as much as any city in the world, right, literally. Right. Uh, and uh, very eagerly uh, tore up a lot of our city for freeways and parking lots and and the the ease of driving, and and so uh, the city continued to grow and thrive economically, but our urban core really declined precipitously, uh, to the extent today where we have about half the population in the urban core that we had at its peak. And then the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a lot of interest in really reviving the center of the city again. And I think what's interesting is we're still growing and thriving as a region. I think there are a lot of cities, certainly in the Rust Belt and other places that would love to be Kansas City and, and are envious of the position that we're in as a, as a growing region. 
but we've also tried many of the same sort of big techniques uh, and ideas that every place else has tried. Right. And the, the conversation here is so interesting and relevant because we have been a place of big ideas and um, let's try the new latest and greatest shiny object as a way to save the city and, and help it continue to grow. Um, so that's led us to some analysis that Dennis has done recently and, and you can take it wherever you want, but, but, uh, well, I, I agree with Kevin that we're very conventional in that regard in terms of cities over the last 75 years. Uh, one of the diagrams that we share, uh, with groups when we talk with them about this subject is, uh, one that shows the growth from the 1850 to the, to 1950 and how we became a full fledged city with a, a thriving downtown that has some incredible photos that we love to share and a robust uh, streetcar network that people can't believe when they see it today. Um, and then we compare that to today's world. And the numbers clearly show that uh, for those first 100 years, we grew from a village on the river uh, up to a full-fledged city of uh, a half a million people living in 80 square miles. And then the next 75 years, fast forward with the new development model, and we are now a city of 340 square miles, 320 square miles, right. four times as much, but the same population. Right. And for the, for the purpose of these discussions, we just focus on Kansas City, Missouri, because when you get into the, the metro, you can just really exaggerate, and, and it, the discussion becomes more ridiculous. The metro becomes crazy big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe, Joe you, I, you were showing me some data. And I know numbers don't play well on podcasts, but l let's let's try to paint the, the map a little bit. Um, the the population change and, and how we sit today in terms of where the wealth and energy is of the city compared to where the, the people are. Um, you've kind of got a modern take on that that half million person growth story. Well, I think it's all it's all the policies that they, they're forced to contend with being a city that sits on the border of two states and the multiple counties that come into that. So you have these states pitting against each other. Um, there's an advantage to living in, on the Kansas side, but working in the, in the Missouri side. And so you see a shift to the population and the income that goes over there. And then conversely, the Missouri side has all the impacts of those daily commutes that come in, the roads that get carved through the city. Um, and so that, you know, just at a policy level, they're at a more articulate level of, of all communities I've been to, everybody's talking about tax increment finance. They're all, it's, it's a much more literate level of, of policy discussion. Uh, the information is a little bit harder to get than most places, but um, this isn't something that Des Moines has to deal with or um, I mean, I guess Minnesota or Minneapolis has a little bit of that problem with St. Paul, but for the most part, it's not a different state that they're dealing with. Right. Um, I, there's a part of me and I've heard you give, I've heard you talk a little bit about this. There's a part of me that, um, discounts the the border as an issue in minnesota we yeah minneapolis st paul are both in the same state we've got fargo and moorhead which are the two across and there, there is a big difference between fargo and moorhead and the boundary has something to do with that we have grand forks and east grand forks um i, I want to ask us dennis and kevin how how big is the the state boundary in terms of shaping these two cities. Because when we look at Joe's map, it, there's a tremendous difference between the wealth and affluence of Kansas City, Missouri, and the wealth and affluence of Kansas City, Kansas. It's a, it's a dramatic fall off when you cross over the river. Is that, is that a byproduct of just public policy? Is there something else here that we're missing? Well, in terms of Joe's studies, he's comparing Kansas City, Missouri to Kansas City, Kansas, which is a stark contrast. If you include the other Kansas suburbs, it goes the other direction. It does. Right. So it's a mix. It's a real clear mix. Now, the, the dynamic, I think, that having a city on a state line creates is that it's complicated enough to have a city of half a million people and all those variables in play. But then we've got two totally different cultures in terms of the state of Kansas and the state of Missouri that are coming together in one place trying to make policy and it doesn't happen. Right, right. One of the one of the policy, when we first started doing the study, it was actually um, against city policy to actually look at it, the earnings tax. It was just some random ordinance they had in the 1960s that just didn't allow them to look, actually look at the data that they were collecting. The, the city since changed that, but one of the things that we've discovered in the process of doing the study um, and I don't know if this is completely 100% true, but we've heard that it's um, 
the state can't DNA or the cities can't DNX land on the Missouri side. Really? So even though they've gobbled up all of this real estate, they can't do what Memphis is doing, which is like just saying, all right, we, we, we grabbed too much land. They can't now go backward. Right, right. So that's going to be a state policy change. So they have to abdicate to the state, like, hey, we want to change our direction in annexation. And on the Missouri side, they have to deal with that. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, Chuck, one of the things that uh, ex- the state line really exacerbates, you know, Kansas City has become notorious in many circles with uh, the use of uh, development incentives um, you know, featured numerous times in national magazines because because we have such two pretty aggressive states and, and a lot of local jurisdictions. So in addition to some of the inherent challenges of the development pattern and the productivity of our development pattern, we've had for many years a real border war um, with a tremendous race to the bottom for companies switching state line. And in fact, multiple times going Is back this how forth. that border war is fought with basically what side will give me the best tax subsidies? It has been historically. Okay. Now there's recently a, a truce basically that has been agreed to by the two states, which is tremendous progress. And, yeah. um, but it, it's been a very long uh, sort of downward cycle in that regards. Uh, uh, one of the things that, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out as a critique and then I want are, are two locals to, to push back. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this as a talking point. Um, one of the things that is seemed to me as an outsider when I come to Kansas City is that there has been this um, enamored sense that we're enamored with the, the big shiny object, the big project we could do. The splashy recent one was the, the power and light district and the, the whole streetcar line. The idea that, you know, this is a this is a fad we see other people doing. It's in the American Planning Association Journal. Wouldn't it be great if we had this? It would kind of put us on the map. It has seemed to me to be a little bit of an manifestation of an inferiority complex. And I don't want to get all Freudian on everybody, but um, you know, Kansas City is a great place. And when I come here, there's a lot of great stuff going on. What what is the role of these large projects? in the last two, three decades of development here. And do you think that it's been a, make the case that it's been a success or, or else not. Um, what am I missing? Dennis, well, you want to get? Yeah, I'll start and then Kevin will make it sound better. <laughs> uh, You're the one with the radio voice. You, you've got the best <laughs> voice of this whole group. So. <laughs> well, um, so I think, Kansas City can't really be faulted for doing what almost every other city has done for the last 30 or 40 years in terms of the, uh, the attitudes about needing the, uh, the largest convention hall, the, uh, um, the, the, uh, the downtown sports stadiums, and most recently the, uh, the convention hotel. And it just keeps going. Keeping up with the Joneses has been a common pattern throughout the Midwest. It's, I don't really take the, or allow you to lay the blame just on Kansas City in that regard. It's a normal pattern. We, frankly, just haven't known any better. And that's what uh, is exciting about these discussions is that we're learning. We're learning that there is a, a different way to see your city and a different way to approach economic development that actually has more resilient and, and long-term staying uh, you know, fiscal uh, health to it. So I uh, appreciate the fact that uh, we have been focused on our downtown. We have uh, turned the tables completely over the t- last 20 years where we have a, a, a much more uh, uh, active downtown community. We have 25,000 people living downtown now. Most communities or cities our size can't say that. Uh, and we're pretty proud of that. And it's, um, it's brought good return, great return we don't know. We, uh, the complaint that uh, I always share is that we just don't know what the numbers look like because nobody's really been paying attention to the return on investment discussion. So it, it feels good, but you know, on one hand, you would hope it would feel good after you spend hundreds of millions of dollars that there'd be a change. Right. But what we can't tell is whether that was hundreds of millions of dollars that's now going to have the kind of return you would want to have. But it has had return. And we do have a, a, a growing and a much more healthy downtown, and that's what any city needs. Ke- Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the charitable side of that um, I, I think the uh, the downtown uh, and the urban core here declined much more than most people realize or wanted to admit. And it probably had more in common with cities like Detroit, St. Louis, et cetera, than, than a lot of locals wanted to admit. And I think people in leadership positions were trying to figure out what can we do about this? You know, what, what do we do? 
And uh, without uh, any knowledge of, of another way to go, then they gravitated toward some of the big projects and the things where you certainly you can cut a ribbon and spend a lot of money, and it sounds impressive, and some of those worked okay and some didn't. Uh, I do think there has been a broader recognition over the last decade or two of uh, making investments that are a little bit more strategic in that regard. When the newest arena was built downtown, it was built without parking, um, which was a big step in the right direction. That's huge. Um, The streetcar um, was was basically a value capture mechanism and how that was built and paid for. And it's been remarkably successful and it's really changing people's attitudes about using public transportation in a city where middle-class people generally don't use public transportation. Uh, so I, I think there's been an awareness over the last 10 or 15 years that have really changed, but it, people have been struggling to figure out what, what are the right mechanisms. Joe, I, I, wanna, I want to ask you about streetcars and parking. But before we do that, I'm, I'm signaling you so you can get data ready. Because okay. <laughs> I, I know that whenever you, you talk on these subjects, you're going to want to uh, pontificate on those things. Let, let, let me let me throw something out to, to Dennis and to Kevin and get you to react to it because I, I hear exactly what you're saying. I see this in my community too. We've started to shift inwards. And now that we've started to look at the downtown core, it's like, oh my gosh, we've been asking for this for decades. This feels really good. Thank you for showering love on the right place. But the same group of people that were two decades ago arguing for the interchanges and the frontage roads and the big tax subsidy are now saying what we need is a children's museum in the downtown and what we need is a multi-million dollar trail system and what we need is this big huge project um but at the same time they're also saying and we need the new development out on the edge and we need the new big box store and we need the reconditioned mall and we need and we need and we need um is there any let me let me ask it this way is there any recognition of the damage being done or that has been done by really 60 years of edge development the 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 weight that that has now created on you and the 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 way that's limited your ability to respond to some of these other opportunities that are now presenting themselves is that is there part of a growing awareness there that that trade-off has been made yeah i think there i think there is i think it's it's slow you know, and it's why these conversations and, and having, you know, folks like yourself come here to talk about these things is so important. It's, it's a slow, gradual awakening about all this. I think there are more and more people who understand that there's a problem and there are issues associated with the productivity of development. There are issues associated with transportation um, and quality of life. But I think there's still a general lack of sense, okay, what do we do about this? You know, what, where do we go from here? Uh, we have a strong civic community, and uh, 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 we just came back from a, uh, an exchange in Nashville. Uh, they, the chamber is a strong one locally, and they uh, operate these exchanges uh, between communities and have for the last 30 years. And uh, we made a point this year when we went to Nashville to also focus on what wasn't working well as opposed to all the good things right. and the shiny objects, those things. Uh, and what was most gratifying is that we spent more time as a, uh, a group of 150 civic leaders talking about what we need to get right, talking about issues like uh, social justice, uh, uh, shared, ec- or shared prosperity. Uh, that's become uh, a number one and number two on the topics of our major leaving civic organizations now. So I think we're, we're ready to have the discussion. There's still a lot of learning we need to do to uh, realize this new way of approaching economic development. And it is a new way. It's not like we've been ignoring right. what other cities are doing. We're, we're in a similar position to most other cities. And the fact that we are ready as a culture to have discussions, and we actually are a strong enough community that we can have discussions, um, I think puts us in a great position. Well, and I think that's the, that's the outstanding question, right? Is is Kansas city a leader community or, or, you know, like a, in the middle of the pack community. And I, I think that the cognitive dissonance has been Kansas city likes to talk of itself as a leader. Yet sometimes when we step back and look, it's like, well, we've kind of just done what everybody else has done. Um, You're definitely having the rumblings and the conversation like a leadership community now. And I think that's where, you know, Kevin, you and I have had a lot of talk about, how there's there's kind of an emergent understanding here of the need to 
rethink where we've been and do some things differently. Yeah, I think so. And, and it certainly helped that here um, we've had a very successful sort of bottom-up redevelopment uh, that has been very arts-based and creative-based uh, in the city. It's been extraordinarily successful over the last 20 it, or 30 years. Just in the last few years, yeah. it, I've seen a huge shift. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that uh, that story, and because of how that has driven so much other um, just success and, and, um, and economic development of its own, uh, is now a story that more people understand that there is, uh, you know, another path to, to at least think about and, and emphasize that is, you know, opposed to maybe the, the big new shiny object. Right. And that's something that really grew out of things that were unique to Kansas City, uh, people that were here that were taking risks and taking one little risk at a time. And so that has helped tremendously. And I think that's helping our broader conversation as well. Joe, so one I, of the things I've, oh, go I, ahead, I've enjoyed since uh, bringing or seeing you guys come to town, which happened last year. Um, we had you coming to town. We were at the at the studio. We were really excited about having Chuck Marone in the studio for a while. That was uh, going to be a <laughs> little bit of a coup to have a chance to talk with you one-on-one. And we get a call right before I'm supposed to go pick you up at the airport, and it says, uh, well, Dennis, uh, the mayor of Kansas City, Kansas, has arranged to uh, to pick Joe up and have a have a meeting with him this afternoon. He'll meet you at the library tonight. Oh, did did I did you get shortchanged? Well, we felt that way. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> but actually, what we found that was happening is that um, uh, they were now I feel already guilty. down the path yeah. of having strong town discussions about yeah. looking at their city the way that Joe's been advocating. You look at your city. Uh, we've become great friends with the mayor of KCK through yeah. that process. And you know, when you talk about civic leadership. Uh, they're providing it. You know, it, it, the tale of two cities that Joe's going to talk about this evening has to include the fact that, uh, you know, frankly, Kansas City, Kansas is closer to Detroit than Kansas City, Missouri. So their choices are much more limited. It right. still feels like we're doing pretty good over here on the Missouri side. So it's hard to see that we're not. We're, we are trying to help people understand that we're not, but it's not so hard to see it on the Kansas City, Kansas side. So the leadership there. Uh, makes sense. They're they're seeing that they have few options, and here's some good ideas that they should be following. And I think it's healthy for our community to have that leadership showing up for the rest of us to pay attention to. Right. Yeah. They, I, I think one thing we see is that desperation does prompt the conversation. And, and one of the reasons why it's harder in a place like Kansas City, Missouri, is because you you still have this veneer of affluence over everything. Joe, I. I want to talk a little bit about the streetcars and the parking because these are places where we have some very, uh, what I think is stark uh, contrasts and, and, and maybe the stark ramifications of the public policy that we've been on over the last, uh, you know, 60 years. Maybe start with this. How big is the parking problem here in downtown Kansas City? Are we having, uh, you know, an, a need for far, vastly more parking ramps? Is that what we're talking about? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to talk about it without the visual because I, when I showed you the visual and you just yeah, the visual's stunning. You're just like, oh my! And it was, and I only showed you part of downtown and the parking decks and the surface parking lots. Um, and again, it's perception and reality. We always hear from people that there's a parking problem, there's this, there's that, and and our reaction as a firm is we have to find the data. So we just go and map it. And then that map usually reflects what the reality is. But um, in the case of the streetcar, you know, one of the things that's kind of stunning is, okay, yes, you have brought back um, a, a streetcar in a modern form, but it's only one little nub. that's maybe less than a mile. It's two miles. It's two miles. Mm -hmm. And how many miles did you all have before that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's probably maybe hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. It's probably maybe one, or 2% of what you've had. Mm -hmm. And that's what's kind of amazing is to see that map of what your streetcars produced as a wealth. Today, the wealth is is 10% of the land area of your entire city, but it's 30% of your city's property value is in the old streetcar network. And you can see it as you go, as you go around town. That, you can that see old streetcar network is still really, really potent financially, yeah. even though it's not performing anywhere near the way it did when it had streetcars. And, it, you know, we, we, we actually found a book... Um, as we were doing research and it was your, it was like a book on the streetcars and that, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. We, I should have brought it for you to be, it's, it's, it plays into the strong towns narrative. The first streetcar was a horse pulling mm -hmm. this thing through the mud. It was a, you know, rails in the mud with a, with a horse pulling a little cart with people on it. And that was the first mass transit in, in Kansas city. Then it eventually grew up to a, like an old trolley kind of thing. And then a series of networks and it just incrementally built on itself as a network. And now here we are, 
Oh, I'm, I'm so confused. I didn't know you could do that with transit. <laughs> Here you are 100 years later, and they buy this Cadillac uh, to go up and down the street, and it's wildly successful. Um, but it's I, I would have preferred to see more network and less car, um, so to speak. But anyway, it's, it's in the ground, and you have it, which a lot of cities can't say. On the Kansas City, Missouri side, um, yeah, there, there is um, uh, kind of an awareness of the, the problem that they're in on that side because of the – the lack of value that they've built in the in the county, um, but but an also a, a whole lot of a humility to want to face that problem. Um, so you know the, the staff was awesome when working with their city, uh, the city joint city county there, where they were actually producing maps and data while we were doing the work as well. They were so excited about this process um, that they nerded out on it as well. But it's also pretty stark to see that they've had like less than two percent growth in population, but twenty seven percent growth in infrastructure so they know that they're carrying a lot of a lot of weight with them mm-hmm. um the the parking stuff when we when, when we looked when you showed me that uh you've got a great data yeah. you've got a great series where you put uh, a map up and you show here's the buildings here's the parking here's the roads and then you consolidate into boxes here's the size of the box that is actually generating your wealth your tax base here's the size of the box where you're parking cars um, give us a sense of what those boxes look like. Uh, I'll just give you the easy numbers. They have uh, about 19 square miles of buildings, um, about 20 square miles of roads, and about 22 square miles of parking. So one-third, 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 roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, that's not the whole city. There's a whole lot of land area for parks and grass and backyards and all that stuff. But from a valuation standpoint, the buildings are pulling um, about 44 bucks a square feet in value. Parking's pulling three dollars right. a square foot in value. Your roads costing you about twenty two dollars a square foot. So, so a third of your tax base is paying forty four dollars a square foot. Huge amount of money. A third of your tax base is deeply negative because it costs you money to run. That's your that's your street network, and then a third of it is parking, which is hardly paying less than less than like seven eight percent. Your, your parking's fifty. Like it, your your buildings are paying fifteen times what the parking's paying, right? And your roads cost you half as much as your buildings, right? Is the way right. I look at it. Yeah, that's where we get in that private to public investment ratios that just go mad. Um, so or or to see like I mean again back to you know, we had a conversation on on the, on the radio show this morning where we were talking about TIF, and I said when you have valuations like this where you're taxing your parking so little that that's a TIF. It's just baked into public policy. You're just not having an aware conversation of it. So right. meanwhile, your city starts decaying, these big parking lots get put up. Well, that's a tax break. Right. Yeah, and, and in reality, most of the most of the TIF, at least in the in the central part of the city, has gone for structured parking. I mean, that's really the, the vast majority of the expenditures have gone strictly for structured parking. You, you said earlier that the, the latest project didn't have parking with it. Uh, what's the... Let's talk a little bit about as locals here, what the perception is on parking. Um, and, and, you know, I, I know we're all on the same page in terms of the need to convert some of this surface parking into productive uses. Um, what are the, is there any unique resistance to that beyond just the idea that, boy, I live out of town and I want to be able to drive in and park for free. And that's a, that's a cultural expectation. Or is it more complicated than that? You know, I, it, it's probably, it's probably very typical, uh, I would think, as, as to most cities, uh, uh, most cities in America, really. I mean, we like to say the middle of the country, but it's really my experience is most cities in America yeah. have, have a similar well, You feeling. and I were in walking around Savannah where you yeah. put in an underground parking ramp and yeah. <laughs> spent bizarre amounts of money. I know, uh, mil- yeah. millions and millions of dollars in places with terrible soil. Right, you know? um, right. But so there, there's that same expectation here as there, there is anywhere. The only probably unique aspect to Kansas City is we're probably a little more uniquely spread out uh, as a region. Uh, and we have more freeway lane miles per capita than in any city in America, which makes any city in the world, really. And so there, there, there's sort of, a, uh, there's probably a, a more of a car culture here than there might be in some places, but I, I haven't really recognized a whole lot of difference. I think one thing that that is beginning to change with that regard, I think that the success and the great positive vibes that the, the streetcar starter line have created um, which is will be extended over the next few years another four miles through it's really what is the main spine, the main central spine of the city. So you'll have a, a six-mile-long um, streetcar line, um, which may not ever get it extended beyond that. Who knows? But that will at least be the line through the heart of the city. 
um, that that really has begun to change some people's uh, viewpoints about how they access uh, anything in the city. And, and certainly recognition that you can park anywhere near or along the streetcar line and take it in uh, to other destinations. So I think that that is changing. It will continue to change. So we've had 75 years of practicing being suburbanites, and most of us only know that life. Sure. So this uh, phenomenon of living in an urban way is fairly new for many Kansas Cityans, and those that are are starting to help create this understanding and appreciation for the parking discussion. Right. Um, it's uh, We see the uh, the understanding certainly coming out of the planning department, too. It's, it's not like it's institutionalized and we can't change it. It's more of a cultural thing that we need to address. Yeah. If I go to, to New York or I go to Boston, I, I go to, you know, San Francisco, Chicago, it, it's a pain to have a car. It's easier to live without one. I feel like when we're in Kansas City, we still haven't crossed that threshold yet. It's actually maybe harder to live without a car. Am I, am I, am I missing something? Is that right? No, I think you're absolutely right. It, it, unless you live your life in sort of a very small part of the metro area, it, it is difficult to, to at least not have occasional access to a car. Uh, and so th- there are ways that I think that are changing about that. And, you know, we as a family have been experimenting with that quite a bit. You know, we're uh, for, for a, a middle-class family in this metro area to live with one car for a family of four. Takes, is, takes some work. Yes, yeah. it takes some work and it's rare. Um, we're trying it and we're making it work. Uh, and uh, at, But as a choice, as a conscious choice, I think most people would not even really consider that and would you know, just simply have one car per adult. It, you you go ahead, Joe. I'm well, sorry. It just one of the things that that's been striking in just mapping the roads and and putting the infrastructure down, um, but also seeing the history and legacy of this town is that you can see the architecture of this place and the the beauty in the buildings and the beauty in your landscape architecture, your parks, your fountains everywhere. You have all this wealth that you have all around you that you're you know these lost this lost civilization <laughs> has left you. Um, <laughs> And, and it's just like, who are it, these giants who built this thing? Yeah. And it's, <laughs> yeah, not, it's no, not like, I, it's not like we're visiting Boston or something. <laughs> it's like, this is your town. Right. And just in, in basic numbers and what you did from your population, Dennis mentioned it earlier, just that 1947 or 46 tipping point where you're able to contain yourself and have all of this wealth, this incredible mass transit system. And it's not like you didn't have streets. You had streets. People had cars in 1946. Everybody was happy, you know, and, I mean, there were issues. You know, we, we've also looked at the redlining that was going on in that in the community back then. But you 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 basically from then to today, you did twelve times the amount of roads in this community, and you only increased your population by less than two times. So less than two times growth in population, but twelve times growth in infrastructure. And you wonder why you're broke, right? You know. So yes, okay, we can drive around, we can do all of this stuff. Well, we we've made that so easy by default. That's become the pattern. And then what's what's frustrating is to go into these places where you have um, somewhat intact neighborhoods like Westport, but then you have this uncomfortable uh, road network that's been sh- hammered into that environment. I mean, you, on, you and I on our way back from lunch, we got, we got stuck in one of those weird situations where you had to do a weird turn because of the road infrastructure. They wouldn't let you do the thing that you wanted to do, which is turn left. You had to go right, 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 right. And, and it was it was it was all because of traffic flow. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We have to get the speeds up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask a question about the streetcar. Mm-hmm. A- and you said something I had not heard before, but but when, if you said it, it's obvious. The starter, you called it the starter line, yeah. which I, I think is a little optimistic euphemism uh, here that you've adopted locally, which I'm, I'm fine with. Um, when I look at your streetcar system, and I'll say this as an outsider, you can throw uh, tomatoes at me uh, when I leave the office here. Um, it's always seemed to me to be a little bit of a, of a vanity project. Like it started... Um, with the destination you wanted, which is something flashy and, and, and impressive that you could, in a sense, put on your Chamber of Commerce marketing brochure to other cities to say, look, we're a real place. We have a nice streetcar. Um, I've heard a lot of arguments, though, along the lines of a little bit what you said earlier is like we're signaling to people that it's OK to take transit. We're signaling to people that there's other ways to live here besides to drive in and, and live way on the edge and commute in. Um, it's the first time I've heard this term starter line, which is maybe a local way you talk about it, uh, but that would denote that there's something else coming. Make the case for me 
that this is a successful project. And I'm not asking you to say it's a, it's a blind 100% success, but, but make, the, make the best case you can that this is a good project and something that other cities should consider emulating. Well, I'll, I'll take a crack at it. Uh, and, you know, the streetcar itself actually, this comes on the heels of about 30 years worth of failed initiatives to build some sort of a light rail line or light rail system uh, in Kansas City. Monorail? And, uh, no monorail. <laughs> no monorail has been proposed yet. I think there actually might have been one in the in the fifties that monorail. was proposed. Monorail. Down, a downtown monorail. monorail. <laughs> um, but we had many, many failed initiatives that were very, very grand in scope. Uh, some that connected to the airport. Some that went for forty or fifty miles, and they could never garner enough voter support uh, to get there. And a lot of us that were urban advocates thought, you know, if we're going to do something, it really should just be in the heart of the city where it actually makes the most sense to have high quality transit and where there's actually the most support for it uh, to begin with. And so um, the streetcar line, uh, I, I think there are a couple of things about it that are really important to know here and, and what has really helped. One, uh, obviously, is, you know, Kansas City is, is uh, our urban core is a little bit different in that it's, it's almost like a five mile long urban core. Um, that runs north to south from downtown through to the country club plaza. Uh, and, and so it, it lends itself to a very linear nature that is different than, than some more centralized cities. And I would think, Joe, you've actually made the case that it's an urban core with like a baby core. Yes. That kind of connects to it, right? It's, it's basically a two headed. Yeah. Uh, it's like a dumbbell downtown. And, it, and it's, and Dennis pointed this out earlier, what you, you've added like 10,000 people in, in the last 10 years into downtown. So yeah. there is a significant, uh, urban population in the core. Right. Right. Okay. Keep so, going. Um, so the streetcar w- was built really to reinforce that. And that's where our strongest uh, efforts should be. That's where our best transit should be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also been funded, um, like I said, as, as a classic value capture mechanism, there's a little bit of federal money in there, but most of it is local money. Most of the line is paid for by the property owners within a, a radius of the line itself. So they, they pay for it. They will stand to benefit the most from it which I think is how we would like more of our transportation's investments to be. The third thing, um, th- I think... I, I'm nodding silently. Yeah. So yes, I should acknowledge yeah. that. <laughs> well, that's how the streetcars were built too. That's yeah, how the exactly. original streetcar yeah. system was Absolutely. built. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's how they were built here and, and in most places. So the third thing, the unique nature here that I think has really helped it is the fact that it's free. Uh, it's free for the end user. Uh, and that was a strategic decision made by the streetcar authority. By the way, it was it was initially created and funded by a, a whole separate authority than the transit agency. Um, the decision to make it free was something that, you know, I personally have been fond of and an advocate of for, for quite a long time, simply because uh, I think when you look at the big picture, when you, when you look at a lot of our American cities that where there is just no culture of transit use at all, how do we get started? How do you, how do you encourage middle-class and upper-class people to ride transit? And like it or not, the dollar or dollar fifty that somebody pays is a barrier. You remove to friction riding. to right. get to get on this thing and go. Right. right, and and in most cases, like in our case here, there is so little revenue that is actually gained from that dollar or dollar fifty that it just doesn't even seem worth it. And in fact, because of the success of the streetcar, the transit authority now is looking at uh, probably early next year. We're going to be the first major city that the entire system will be free, the buses and, and everything. Wow. Wow. Um, so, it, and part of that was because of the financial gap that they needed to close to make that happen was remarkably small. Uh, and so that is a real difference. Yeah, once you right remove now. the friction, uh, you get more ridership. Absolutely. And then, you know, once you uh, deal with, get rid of all the mechanisms of collecting revenue, often it costs more to collect it than you actually make. It does. There's significant cost to that. And, you know, I, I'm certainly generally of the philosophy that I think should, things should pay for themselves and we want everything to pay for itself. Um, and so, you know, there can be, you can criticize the notion of free uh, anything, uh, especially when it comes to transportation and infrastructure, where we've done really so much free stuff. But I think as a shift, as a culture shift, this is an important mechanism and it's an important bet to make. And, and since it was really, it's really paid for locally uh, and leveraged locally, I think it, it, I think it's a really good bet and it seems to be paying off Dennis, very well. Make the case that the streetcar is working. So I've mentioned before, I, I can't tell you about the numbers. I right. wish I could. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the promoters will tell you about the $2 billion in return on the $100 million in investment. And maybe that's correct. 
because there has been a lot of private investment in the downtown area. Um, again, I think the primary um, uh, advantage or value that it's provided is it's allowed us to experience an urban living uh, that we weren't able to experience before. And uh, even for people coming to Kansas City as tourists, get to get a sense about what that's like. And it's a it's a it's something we never had or haven't had for years. Right. So that part of it is certainly valuable, and it is bringing more cohesion to our urban area, and and it's easier for it to be an urban area in that regard. So, uh, as an investment, whether it was the right move to make, uh, can't can't justify that necessarily, but uh, I can't say that it is having positive impacts on uh, on our city. Ch- Chuck, I was, yeah, yeah. It made me actually just made me think in talking about this. Yeah, you know, I just finished listening to your interview again with uh, Paul Stewart. Yeah, with Oswego. Yeah, and that sort of he talked about confidence and the culture of confidence and it's it, a how huge important thing it is. That, yeah, right. and I and I think so. This is a big investment, and big investments are open to every amount of scrutiny and criticism. But the fact that the streetcar here has been uh, a, a, an investment that seems to work, the fact that it is kind of shiny and new and, and people are excited about it, it does seem to create a, a culture of confidence around the city again and that living in the city is, is, a, is something that real people can do who have a choice. Uh, and there is, it's certainly been a boost to the civic confidence. Yeah. Joe, I, I know you've seen some of this in the data, the, the, maybe not the directly the impact of the streetcar line, but the impact of the streetcar network as it was. Um, it's, 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 let me put it this way. It's easy for me to be convinced that these are good investments. Is that my confirmation bias or is that something that it shows up in, in the work that you've been doing? Well, it shows up in the data that, that the, um, the spine of value that Kevin talks about is a legacy effect of that spine of, of mass transit. Now with the, with the city did have that it needs to take to the next level is it also used that infrastructure to get to areas of low wealth. Um, there is an extensive line system that went on the east side um, to where the jazz district is and also went across to KCK um, into its downtown. So it, it really did spread the wealth um, around the community, but also served a purpose to bring individuals closer to jobs as well. And, and, and many of the folks in the community that could least afford it. So as a transportation system, if you're going to offer a free, um, a free a transit ride, um, it's nice that it goes through the downtown, but it also should start thinking at that level that Kansas City used to, used to think. And, and the conversations are happening here. The last time I was here, uh, we've, we got in a considerable conversation about equity um, and value. And so we, we actually mapped uh, the, the legacy effect of redlining. Um, here in in Kansas City, and we'll be presenting that tonight. And and it's I'm, I don't feel at all, th- which is stark and pronounced more than so than I've seen in other places. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't feel at all like it's going to be um, uh, difficult to release that information. That it may be in a lot of other cities where there people are still embarrassed to talk about it, or they don't want to talk about it, or it's going to make people feel uncomfortable. I don't I don't get that sense at all from this community. They're they're, they're willing to talk about that, and that's going to be the next step. Which is how do you make sure that the, the, the neighborhoods that have received the least amount of uh, uh, a value and wealth creation um, do have that equitable share of the pie. You all are starting now here in Kansas City, Missouri, a uh, comprehensive planning process. Um, I don't know when your last update was. I, I'm certainly guessing it was before some of this transformation started to happen. Certainly it was before the housing crisis, right? So, you know, we're talking about, uh, uh, I think, a different economy in many ways. What are some of the challenges that you feel are on the table? And I'm looking at our two locals here uh, for this process. What, what, are, what are some of the things that people should know uh, are challenges going in that, that need to be addressed that maybe haven't been brought up and discussed in, in, the, in a thorough way in the past? Well, there's... Um, <clears throat> There's the uh, fact that we are a suburban community that's uh, learning that we can be urban. And that's a discussion we're just getting into as a city. Um, And that will affect how we talk about the future of our city in terms of a comprehensive plan. Um, uh, I mentioned before that the uh, terms like uh, uh, shared prosperity are becoming front of mind to all civic leaders. And uh, those conversations are starting to happen. Uh, So how that gets manifest in a and a comprehensive plan for a community that's really trying to address it is what we're most interested in. 
uh, and, I'm, and I'm hoping we can now add uh, uh, the research that Joe's bringing tonight and let that inform our comprehensive plan and, and our understanding about how we can build ourselves forward, uh, hopefully in, forward in a, in a way that builds us out of some of the liabilities we've built our way into for the last 75 years. Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, in, in a city that's 319 square miles, uh, a comprehensive plan is, <laughs> is it, no small trick. Right. Um, but uh, It's a little bit of a misnomer. Yeah, yeah, because it's hard to, you know, a a lot of times in the past, I've seen these plans be essentially, here's our next phase of outward expansion and how we're going to accomplish that. And and I don't think that that's what's going to be on the table this time. Yeah. And I, you know, I think as a city, we've been uh, addicted to infrastructure for a long, long time, Uh, even even going back to the to the era of uh, trains and, and streetcars, you know, when, when Union Station was built here in the 19 teens, it was built uh, ostensibly for a city of 2 million people uh, when there were less than a million people in the city. And there, so there's always been this sort of grand ambition uh, for the city. And we, we've probably always built, overbuilt our infrastructure in every regard. So coming to grips with that, looking ahead the next 20 or 30 years is a really important uh, change. And then I think, you know, uh, some of the other things that we talk a lot about uh, that is uh, certainly in your book and in part of the regular Strong Towns Dialogue, we have uh, urban neighborhoods, now urban core neighborhoods, that have switched from becoming low-demand or no-demand places to becoming high-demand neighborhoods. And uh, so now they're starting to experience um, what it's like to change in the other direction. And that's a real challenge for a lot of people, people who live in neighborhoods who, um, who, who even in urban neighborhoods think maybe they shouldn't change. Uh, and, and that cultural mindset is really hard to shift and what does uh, what does an incremental change in growth look like uh, for our uh, our urban core neighborhoods? And that's um, I think the combination of issues when you have a city that is so diverse that has urban, suburban, and rural all within its city limits is is it's difficult. Yeah, it, it feels like there's a needle to thread here, and I, I don't. The, I I've had a couple of interactions before I before you and I ever met, Dennis. Before I ever came here and and had some very you know wonderful conversations with people here, I had some very negative ones with some of the city staff, uh, with some of the local leaders in regards to development out on the edge. Uh, I was brought into a, a conversation once where I was asked to give my opinion on how we should develop. And I can't remember how many thousand homes were planned in this thing. And they're like, well, yeah, but we put in decorative lights this time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what? what? Like that's not going to solve anything. And there was a tension because this was, as you've kind of alluded to earlier, this is the way we do things. And now we're doing this the same way, but a little bit nicer. It's going to be better this time. Um, it feels like there's still a little bit of that remnant in City Hall, certainly in the broad development community. Um, this is a kind of an easy way to continue down this path that we're comfortable and familiar with. What, what's the, uh, what are the likelihood of us putting into this conversation uh, a, different, a different mindset? One that maybe even we get to the point where not only would we have what I think Kansas City is is moved towards, which is a a two tier approach. We'll do uh, slightly nicer suburban development and slightly nicer urban development to one where we say, okay, the suburban development is killing us. We really need to somehow walk away from this, and we need to put our focus and energy as a community here. Can we? Is there a chance we get to that spot, or is that a leap too far? So. Uh Last year, you were invited back to town. I was. I was. It was very kind. Yes, I was treated very well. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And that was part of us who are really trying to get this message out. But one of the gratifying things that happened is soon after that, our Chamber of Commerce invited you back to town. They did, yes. So you were here twice last year. Uh, and here you are again. Yeah. Look, look at the trend we have, Chuck. I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, yes. The other side of that is uh, uh, we've got uh, uh, two sides of the city fighting for Joe's time these two days that he's here. And that's yeah. great to see because he's helping us understand things. Uh, we're just starting down that part of the journey. And I'm thrilled that we're starting down that part of the journey. No question we have a lot of baggage that we've got to learn to deal with. But we are starting to have these discussions, you know, thankfully, because you guys have led the way and helped us see these things and are helping us to move forward. But 
there's a lot of people who are getting interested in this and always is momentum. Right, right. What I like about the conversation, and maybe this is your third strike, uh, this visit, who knows, yeah. um, <laughs> is that uh, um, I don't want to bring a baseball metaphor. No, go ahead. Um, right. We're going to get to baseball <laughs> here before baseball. we're done. Right. Um, <laughs> I get to gloat for once in a decade. <laughs> you know, I, I think that a lot of uh, the, the conversations moving forward, it's going to take that. It's going to take a con- continuous education process. Um, your book's doing a tremendous amount of doing that. Your ground game of talking about this and bringing the message of strong towns around the community, around the country, is is helping. But also, I think the the li- back to the literacy level of of tax discussions here in Kansas City is that they're already primed to have the discussion. So to say, okay, the suburban environment is subsidized, and here's how, and get that information out, uh, people are at least um, not fully in denial here about it because they can talk about it where in a lot of communities I go to, it's just, they just can't get into it. It's just too, too crazy for them to even have a tax conversation. Right. And uh, Chuck, I would say 25 years ago when I graduated college and I was already, I was already a completely a dyed in the wool new urbanist, yeah. you know, and, uh, was completely, you were a loner then. Yeah. I was caught up in all that, but yeah, um, it, it felt lonely. Yeah. Uh, it, it really did. And there was, um, the, the conversation still felt very much like it was, uh, you know, the 1950s or 60s with, with everything that we talked about. And um, coming back now after being away for, for eight years, uh, there's no question there's a different conversation now than there was, uh, not just 25 years ago, but even 10 years ago. Uh, there's a different conversation. There's a different level of excitement uh, and interest uh, in in the city, uh, in maybe addressing some of the, uh, some of our legacy flaws. Uh, and so I think, I think there's a real opportunity uh, to, to turn the corner and do something different and an openness to embracing some different, different ideas that just wasn't even part of the conversation uh, years ago. You, you wrote a great book, why I walk that was about your uh, basically it was like your testimonial. Here's, here's why I'm a walker. Um, it, it, it seems like in cities like Kansas city, and I would include St. Louis, uh, Omaha, not, not so much Minneapolis anymore, uh, or, or really St. Paul a little bit. But, you know, you can go further south and Oklahoma City, I think. Stro- there's a struggle with uh, taking walking seriously mm-hmm. um, as not just a, an activity people enjoy, but as actual transportation, as something that we're going to elevate as literally like the highest returning kind of investments we can make. Is that shift starting to happen here? And wh- what needs to what needs to what needs to come next so that we're walking with Kevin Klinkenberg? <laughs> well, thank, that's very kind of you. Um, I think it is happening. I I certainly see just in it, it's been kind of funny coming back to a, you know imagine leaving Brainerd for a period of years and then coming back and looking at your own city with with different eyes, and you see a lot of things that are the same, but you notice a lot that's different. Uh, I, I certainly see more. I don't, I don't know more. if Brainerd would really change. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's changed a lot. <laughs> We've got the photos of how much it's changed. Uh, yeah. Uh, but there, there's no question there are more people uh, out on foot, uh, out on bike, uh, using transit than, than there would have been in the past. I, I see it a lot more. There are a whole lot of little things that need to be done uh, uh, as a city to, to encourage more of that. And I think... Uh, I think a big part of our challenge is shifting the mindset of our, uh, of our community that those little things are actually important that, um, you know, fi- doing little things like uh, just having on-street parking to protect pedestrians, to strategically have um, bike lanes where they're needed, to have the right lighting, to have the right maintenance uh, of our public space, uh, to have street trees, those, those little things we have neglected for so long that, that will make a tremendous difference. Um, I will say, you know, I've been, I've become a recent aficionado of using electric bikes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which, I've, I've heard, I've not done myself, but <laughs> which I've heard. in a city like this would, which is a very, very hilly city. Um, it opens up a whole world of riding a bike that I never thought possible. And I see, I see more and more people adopting that. And so I'm optimistic that that will be something that we can really use as a leverage point to get more people out on foot as well. Um, uh, but I think in general, we need to do we need to do a lot of little things well and continue to change the cultural mindset um, 
that uh, the only way to live in this city is to get in a car and drive and park right in front of your destination. Well, I'd like to add that you know you, you've got a lot of repair to do in this community. That there's there's uh, little blast zones that have happened all over the place where you've tried to suburbanize an ur- suburbanize an urban environment. But conversely, there's a lot to learn from the Kansas City metro area that Kansas City can learn from itself. So something like Country Club Plaza of its day, that was that was a suburban mm-hmm. other city, right? But it had its own downtown, it had its own core, and it grew upon itself over time to become like a second downtown. But yet that was a suburban experiment mm-hmm. of its day. So why can't that happen in other places? And that's, I think, the, the question to ask yourself at a metro level is, how do you replicate that genetic material around the region that you can learn from yourself? Yeah, Country Club Plaza was a, a complete exercise in incremental growth and change, although be it with one owner. So it's kind of fascinating. Let me, um, as a closing thought, I'd like all, all three of you to weigh in on one thing that the rest of the, the rest of the country could learn from Kansas City. There's a lot of good stuff going on here. We, we've not been hesitant to, to look at the, uh, the underbelly of it and, and, and draw some critiques. But I, I do think that there is a spirit here. There's an attitude here. There's certainly a lot of success on the ground that we can point to. If you were going to encapsulate that into a lesson uh, that you would share with others, what's one thing that people could draw from Kansas City that they could start doing in their communities that would, would help move this ball along? Dennis, you want to start? I do. And before I say that one thing, I do want to thank Sam Mears and Barclay Advertising for giving us this Oh, this space. fantastic studio. Yes. And also wanted to thank the Kaufman Foundation for funding uh, Urban 3 study for Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas. It's a it's going to be a great tool. And we're thrilled that they are. I've seen the data. It's going to blow people away. So well, and you should be thanked as well for your continued advoc- advocacy for your community and all that you've done. It's not easy. Absolutely. Uh, being being the bearer of, of information to a community. So. Yeah, but it's fun bringing characters like you to town. <laughs> that's, that's all good. Um, so the thing I would throw out uh, for other communities is that um, uh, our own Abby Kenny, uh, one of the planners in our studio, uh, started uh, this year uh, what we think is the first unofficial uh, local chapter of the Incremental Development Alliance. Great. Um, and We've met monthly now for the entire year. We had our 10th meeting last night that was uh, uh, presented by the, uh, uh, the local planning director and the s- uh, deputy planning director. Um, and we continue to build momentum there. Uh, uh, they didn't know how to start a chapter, so we just did. Uh, John Anderson was so thrilled about it, he came and gave a presentation two months ago. Um, I think that's a great way to continue the conversation in any city. So we think there ought to be chapters all around the country. Absolutely. Fantastic. Joe, you got something quick? Um, well, it's, it starts with the meat being cooked properly at the barbecue <laughs> here is amazing. Um, I had some burnt ends for lunch. Um, I'm going to probably pay for that later. It's going to wipe me out. But the, 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 the urbanism here is spectacular. And the more that the community can learn from itself and, and, and maybe, um, step past some of their biases of why did these things happen or how, how can we not do this again? Um, I think that they just have, Kansas City just has to look around. It's all around here. Yeah. Kevin. Yeah, I think I, I, w- I would tend to echo that with, with Joe. I think there, there was that sort of that, that missing middle urbanism we talk so much about that we have in abundance uh, in this city. And it's incredibly livable. Uh, it, it does all the things that we want it to do. It's very productive. It built unbelievable wealth for, for this city and this region. And I think as a city, we haven't always valued that uh, enough. I, I've always been wanting and hoping more people would value that. And I think people really are now. And something that I think other cities can see is that you can build remarkable, livable uh, urban neighborhoods um, that have this incredible, messy, you know, mixed up quality to it that doesn't necessarily involve, you know, everything has to be a a, a 20-story tower or a 300-unit apartment building or something. There's this great um, weaving nature to the the city itself. Um, I was going to say, I think it's great that you guys have built off of AAA baseball as one of your, uh, <laughs> one of your hallmarks. <laughs> well, 
Now, Chuck, <laughs> you have a great AAA baseball team. I, I think it's just fantastic. And I was going to be generous about <laughs> how, how bad I felt for the Twins. I to, am so I mean, sorry. of all teams to lose to the Yankees. So, uh, and 16 postseason losses in a row. I mean, statistically, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to even imagine. Because it's only been four years since we won the World Series. I know, but. I know. I, I can tease you because <laughs> it's such a near memory. You still are on the the, 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 the banners hang forever. You've got yours. I'm, I'm happy for you. Uh, it's a twins turn to be good for a while. Yeah. And uh, I never begrudge when Kansas City beats us. I'm always happy for you. It's the other teams in the division that I really detest. So well, we always root for the American League Central teams too. So yeah. it was, it was uh, you know, of course we had our years in the seventies where we uh, lost repeatedly to the Yankees too. So we have oh, that memory. We can all join in our common hatred of the Yankees. Um, thank you everybody. Um, Dennis Strait from Gould Evans. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Kevin Klinkenberg, K2 Urban Design. Where can people get a hold of, of you, Kevin? Uh, I have a website. It's just my name, kevinklinkenberg.com. Are you going to be blogging more now, too? Uh, we'll I hope so. My gosh, your blogging's awesome. Where can get a people get a hold of you, Dennis? If they go to gouldevans.com, they can find me on the website there. G-O-U-L-D-E-V-A-N-S.com. Right. And then, of course, Joe Minicosi with Urban 3. Love you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. <laughs>